Chapter Five, Part Two of Rocks and Their Origins by Grenville A. J. Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Igneous Rocks, Part Two. The Intrusion of Large Bodies of Igneous Rock. Attention has been already called to the composite gneisses formed by the intrusion of an igneous magma between the leaves, as it were, of sediments. Such occurrences are often seen on the margins of batholites or of any kind of igneous dome, and they no doubt represent the picking off of layer after layer from the wall surrounding the intrusive mass. If these layers can become absorbed into the igneous rock, the crest of the dome can advance, and the dome itself can widen, so long as sufficient heat is supplied to it from below. Space is found for the intrusive mass at the expense of the marginal rocks, but it is obvious that the portions absorbed merely add to the bulk of the igneous material. The composition of the latter must also undergo modification. Its great size, reaching as it does far down into the crust, in comparison with the quantity of matter absorbed in the upper regions, may render such modification very difficult to trace beyond the latest zone of contact. Petrologists differ very widely as to the extent to which igneous masses assume their place in the upper regions of the crust by processes of stoping, absorption, and assimilation. The statement, however, in a recent work that the assimilation hypothesis is still supported by some French geologist is calculated to surprise those who recognize the trend of modern opinion both in America and on the continent of Europe. Far from the views of A. Michel Levet, C. Barreau, and A. Lacroix surviving as an expression of national perversity, they have been supported to a remarkable degree by the observations of Setterholm in Finland of Lepsius and H. Credner in Saxony, of A. Lawson and F. D. Adams in North America, and by the careful reasoning of C. Dolter, based largely on his own experimental work. A. Harker and J. P. Iddings have argued that assimilation is merely a local phenomenon, of little importance in the theory of igneous intrusion. W. C. Broger, however, who strongly supports the Lacolytic view for the Christiania district, expresses himself with far more caution and leaves the way clear for conclusions as to absorption and mingling of molten products in the lower regions of the crust. Dalter lays stress on the influence of high temperature, and especially of the highly heated gases in the igneous rock, in promoting corrosion of the cauldron walls. He attributes greater power of corrosion to the magmas rich in silica, and agrees with R. A. Daly that the rapidly moving basic magmas reach the upper layers of the crust in a condition of comparative purity. Daly may be looked on as an extremist in this matter, but it is hard for those who have studied regions where the deep-seated cauldrons have been cut across by denudation to avoid very large views of igneous absorption. The contact zones between the igneous mass and the surrounding rocks are often seen merely in cross-section on the flanks of a batholite or lacolite. In the areas of Archean rocks, on the other hand, where prolonged denudation has exposed the zones of repeated interaction over hundreds of square miles on an approximately horizontal surface, one may form some idea of the processes that are still effective in the depths. G. V. Hawes in 1881 and A. Lawson at Rainy Lake in 1887 recognized the importance of the process known as stoping, and J. G. Goodchild, Geological Magazine, 1892, page 447, dealt with it very clearly in the Ross of Mull. Cracks in the overlying roof are entered by the magma. 
blocks are wedged off, and these are ultimately absorbed in the molten mass. As the viscosity of the magma increases during cooling, the blocks last detached may remain embedded in the marginal zone. The remarkable purity of this zone, however, in many cases, has raised an obvious difficulty, but it has been pointed out that the modified marginal and composite rock may continuously sink down into the depths, aided by any of the causes that promote magmatic differentiation, while a fairly pure magma, almost of the original composition, is left on the crest of the advancing dome. R. A. Daly has developed the stoping theory with considerable boldness. The areas most likely to carry conviction to those who doubt that igneous masses can be intruded at the expense of their surroundings are those where banded gneisses have arisen on a regional scale. The Range of Composition in Igneous Rocks the broad division of igneous rocks into those of light color and of low specific gravity on the one hand, and those that are dark and heavy on the other, is a very natural one, and Bunsen and Derocher insisted that two magmas were fundamental in the crust. In one of these, the acid magma, which gives rise to granites and rhyolites, silica formed about 70% by weight of the ultimate rocks. In the other, it formed about 50% and the products are basic diorites, gabbros, and basalts. The former group of rock is rich in alkalis, the latter, the basic group, in calcium, magnesium, and iron. The mixture of these more extreme types of magma was held to give rise to what are now called intermediate rocks. Two other views are, of course, possible. If the composition of the globe was originally uniform, the two magmas must have arisen by separation from one of intermediate nature. Hence, in any cauldron in the crust, in place of one of two magmas, an intermediate magma may be presumed to exist, and to split up from various causes into a number of parts which are separately erupted at the surface. Charles Darwin's remarks as to the sinking of crystals in a cooling magma, and the consequent production of a trachytic and balsitic type in the same cauldron, led the way to a general acceptance of the theory of magmatic differentiation in laccolites and batholites. W. C. Broger's brilliant explanation of the variation and succession of types of igneous rock from the Christiania district has had a profound influence on workers in other fields, and has perhaps directed attention away from the parallel possibilities of differentiation by assimilation. The assimilation theory provides the second possible view above referred to. A magma may be modified by the rocks into which it intrudes, so that a basic fluid may become charged with silica from a sandstone, the product crystallizing as a granite, while an acid fluid may be so charged with limestone that diorite ultimately results. A. Harker has discussed both theories clearly, with a strong leaning to the acceptance of magmatic differentiation in the cauldron as the only important cause of variation. R. A. Daly, on the other hand, goes at least as far as La Croix in France in supporting the theory of assimilation. For him, the primitive igneous magma is already basic, and basalts are therefore the prevalent type of igneous rock. They reach us, moreover, from considerable depths. The acid rocks are formed by amalgamation of this magma with the siliceous material lying nearer the earth's surface. Igneous rocks exceptionally rich in alkalis, the so-called alkaline series, result from the absorption of limestone in the magma, 
denser lime-bearing silicates are thus formed which sink by gravitation leaving a lighter magma above in which soda has become concentrated carbon dioxide liberated from the limestone also plays a part in carrying up the alkalis that might otherwise remain in a lower portion e h l schwartz extends daly's views with an almost romantic fullness he holds with chamberlain that the primitive globe resulted from the aggregation of basic meteoritic material the more silicious crust arose from the withdrawal of magnesium and iron into the depths by long-continued processes of leaching and gravitation the melting of this crust produces the acid igneous rocks igneous cauldrons originate in the heat due to faulting or to crumpling or even to the impact of gigantic meteorites when a molten magma is locally established variation occurs in it by assimilation of different types of material round it the balance of judgment as to differentiation and assimilation which should be regarded as parallel probabilities rather than as rival propositions is admirably held by c dolter whose chapters on this matter can be appreciated by all geologists it is of course possible that differentiation of type from various causes has already proceeded so far in the earth's crust as to produce noteworthy contrasts in the rocks erupted in different areas the interior of our globe on chamberlain's planetesimal hypothesis need not have been uniform in constitution either at the outset or at any subsequent time j w judd has called attention to the existence of petrographical provinces a conception that has been very fruitful in results these provinces have been grouped by harker in two branches characterized respectively by rocks rich in alkalis and by rocks rich in lime the former branch appears to be associated with the movements of faulting and block structure rather than of crumpling that have produced Esus's atlantic type of coast the rocks rich in lime on the other hand are said to be characteristic of areas that have been folded like the countries bordering the pacific the names atlantic and pacific have consequently been given to the two branches but these terms seem too geographical in their suggestion dewey and flett have put forward a third type of magma giving rise especially to albite as a primary or secondary constituent and characterized by the production of pillow lavas this type is held to be associated with areas that have steadily subsided without much folding g steinman however has connected the spillites and ophiolitic rocks with regions of intense overfolding so far there are many cases where it is difficult to assign a petrographic province to one or other of these branches and the system seems to demand more simplicity within the provinces than nature is prepared to yield whatever the causes of variation it is necessary to mark out by names certain kinds of igneous material and it is generally accepted that the types thus set up are best based on chemical composition at the same time the minerals present in the rock and also its structure record certain phases of its history and deserve an important place in any system of classification the natural history of an igneous rock is concerned with its mode of occurrence and no isolated specimen can satisfy the geological investigator in the field the porphyritic crystals which have an important influence on the total chemical composition may be found to be strangers to the magma and to have been derived from some mass imperfectly absorbed the dark flecks and patches in a granitoid rock so often ascribed somewhat mysteriously to local segregation in the magma 
again and again prove to be metamorphosed and minutely injected fragments of foreign rocks. Nonetheless, a broad classification is possible on chemical grounds, and the acid, intermediate, basic, and ultra-basic grouping adopted by Judd has been found of great convenience. Among acid rocks we have granite as the coarsely crystalline type, with potassium felspars prevalent and the excess of silica manifest as quartz. The finer grained and sometimes compact types are the urites, quartz felsites, or quartz porphyries. When the rock contains more or less residual glass, we have what are now known as rheolites, of which ordinary obsidian is the most glassy representative. The opposite types, those of the basic group, include, at the coarsely crystalline end, gabbro and basic diorite. The finely crystalline forms are styled dolerites, and those with a trace of glass, or at any rate very fine grain and compact, are basalts. Glassy types are naturally rare in this group, owing to the unsuitable chemical composition. Between granite and gabbro lie various rocks of intermediate composition, some of them rich in soda rather than in potash. Cyanite, granodiorite, and the diorites with a prevalence of soda over lime are coarsely crystalline types. Compact types of these, of course, occur. It will be sufficient, however, here, to name the forms with traces of residual glass, which range from trachyte, the type rich in potash, to andesite, which connects them with basalt, in a series where lime ultimately predominates over soda. In the ultra-basic group are a number of exceptional types. Olivine often becomes an important constituent, and the rocks then decompose into the soft green or reddish masses known as serpentine, or more properly, serpentine rock. Igneous rocks, owing to their range of mineral composition and of structure, combined with their general hardness, lend themselves to various economic purposes. While the granites, resisting atmospheric attack admirably in a polished state, provide our handsomest building stones, dolerites and fine-grained diorites, which owe their toughness largely to the interlocked relations of their constituent minerals, serve as our most satisfactory road metals. End of Part 2 of Chapter 5